Welcome to One Quick Point, the strategy-focused podcast focused on the one key element communications and marketing professionals can use to be the critical link to their success. I'm your host, James Walker. Let's jump in. Right, one quick point is back. I'm very excited to come to you guys with a new season of episodes. And first up, we have an amazing guest that I'll be speaking with today. Her name is Amber Cabral. She's an inclusion and equity strategist focused on helping organizations of all sizes achieve sustainable leadership and inclusion objectives. So Amber is a def- a definitely a special category. She has worked in-house with many Fortune 500 companies and honestly Fortune 10 companies, but she's the founder and principal consultant at Cabral Crow, where her work has touched thousands of people, including some of those Fortune 500 executives and senior leaders at global and multinational organizations. She's most known for delivering respectful, authentic, and no-nonsense trainings, strategies, and content that has simple but impactful steps and eye-opening insights that inspire behavior change. Now, Amber is one of those people that really does give it to you straight. Um, I've witnessed some of her training work, and it's 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 the type of thing that you can use. And that's the, the big thing that I focus on here with One Quick Point. What's the one thing that you can pull out of a specific topic that's going to be key to your success? Well, Amber has several things, but you could pick up any one of them, drop them into what you're doing on a day-to-day basis, and see an improvement. So that's why I'm so excited to have her here with us. So let's get right to it. All right. Well, thank you for joining us, Amber. How are you doing today? I'm great. Thanks for having me. So this has been a conversation I've been very excited to have um, ever since I have heard about your work and been thinking about it. It's it's just an interesting time, I think, for allyship and a discussion around that. And 2020 has been quite the year, in my opinion. I feel like that's a little bit of an understatement, but I mean, it just really has been a year, hasn't it? It has been a wild year and it's not over yet. <laughs> we still have year left to go. <laughs> oh man, it's just hard to believe it. And just, you just think about the people who were here when the year started that are not here. You think about, of, of course, COVID is still very prevalent. We, you know, we just moved through the election and, it, and I, of course I skipped over 3 million things. If If we're talking about it really, would it be safe to say that 2020 is the year of the ally? or at least maybe the year we tried to figure out and understand who an ally is. I do think that that's the case. I feel like this, the year of the ally is up for debate largely because, I mean, we now have like the election results and like see like what it looks like. Um, But as far as like, trying to figure out what an ally is. Absolutely. Like there's been a lot of conversation about allyship and what that means and how to show up and all of that. And I don't feel like before this, I was hearing any meaningful conversation about actual actions around supporting different identities in the ways that I hear it now. And so when we're thinking about some of those identities, maybe you can tell us a little bit about what some of the things are you're hearing and just in conversation or things you're seeing. Yeah. So I, I feel like, you know, just to be very honest, like George Floyd was a inflection point. That was the point where people started to evaluate, wait, am I showing up in a meaningful way? Am I showing up in the right way? Um, what role do I have to play as a human um, around identity? Um, you know, what what is my work? <laughs> 
here? I feel like that's when that question really started to be kind of a broader conversation that everyone was, was participating in. And so I'm not sure that people are thinking critically so much about their identity yet, but I do think that they are thinking about what their responsibility might be to creating environments where others can be seen and other identities are valued, particularly around safety and, you know, just a lot of the discussions that we've been having around like Black identity and Black lives and the value of safety um, if you are not a person who is white, honestly. And so that's new, you know, so I think that that's kind of been the direction that this has come from. And that's cause people because of course we like we like to assign names to things that's where this discussion around ally has been you know like oh okay i need to be an ally because that's what the internet has told me and so now you know now we're having that discussion which is great but um i don't know that we're doing a critical critical look around like what identity actually is and means and you know all of that as much as you know where do i show up and where do i belong in this space as it relates to this particular conversation and and definitely and in, as I'm hearing you talk about it, I think one thing that's different because I'm definitely coming from the PR landscape and the agency side of things. This idea that people even have work to do, and they're thinking about maybe, as you said, they they haven't figured out their thoughts on identity and what that might mean in this context. But the idea that there's work that they have to do, and that the work might be different depending upon what your identity is. They're right. trying about where do I sit in the conversation? And it just seems so advanced compared to where we were, say, you know, I kind of think, you know, forgive me, I'm gonna go back Drake style, summer 16. (laughs) Right. Another year where I feel like we hit an inflection point, but it just wasn't as sharp. The pain was still there. But from a, a corporate standpoint, a workplace standpoint, we were not in a space where that conversation could be heard. Yeah. People think we're still trying to grapple with what Black Lives Matter meant and how they were, what their personal feelings were about that. Mm-hmm. And it feels like even though people still have personal feelings, at this point, they're understanding that there's something happening outside of that that they need to think about, at least from yeah. a professional context. Yeah, absolutely. I think that uh, there's a lot of thought around the value of Black identity, particularly around safety and around um, treatment um, because of what happened. Like, you know, I think because we were in the middle of of a pandemic, well, we're still in the middle of a pandemic, but because we, you know, thought we were in the middle and, you know, this incident happened when everyone was kind of sheltering in place. It was something that got a lot of attention. There was nothing else to distract from it. There was no other news. And so suddenly you were faced with, oh my God, what do I think happened here? How do I feel about it? And what potential role or impact can I have in how things happen going forward. And I don't think that there's been anything that has been that visceral in the sense that, you know, we've always had other distractions. You've had sports, you've had work, you've had travel, you've had, you know what I mean? There were just other things to get in the way. And this particular incident did not grant any opportunity for that because we were trying to shelter in place. And so everyone saw it. Everyone had to think about it or talk about it. There was no avoidance. And it lended credibility and therefore responsibility in terms of action in ways that I think that previous incidents 
did not uh, did not garner. Definitely. And, you know, as we're talking about this, I just want to for for folks that may not be fully read in, how would you define an ally? And then as a follow up performative allyship? Yeah, so an ally in a very simple sense. So, you know, is really just you being willing to learn about the experiences and identity of someone or a group of people that are different than you. Um, and you can be an ally for anyone. Um, it's, it's getting the opportunity to understand the way that I experience privilege and the way you experience privilege are different. And I potentially have an opportunity to extend the privilege that I experience to you. That's, that's essentially what allyship is. And I want to just kind of make a point here that allyship is not just for black people. Um, because right this year has been so rife with so much racial conflict um, sometimes when I talk about allyship, people think it is just, you know, how can I be an ally for the Black community? And I do not want to discourage anyone from doing that because Black the Black community definitely, you know, needs allies. But, you know, allyship is really the process where if you have power and privilege, you are interested in learning about a marginalized group of people. That marginalized group of people could be, you know, people in the disability community, it can be LGBTQ identities, it could be um, people who are, um, you know, from other countries, immigrants, for example. And so it doesn't have to just be Black people, but it's really taking the perspective of, you know, I have power and privilege. I am interested in learning about the experiences of a group of people that is, you know, different than I am and figuring out how I can potentially develop empathy in there and also extend my privilege to that marginalized group of people. So that's what allyship is. And it's labor. Uh, it's labor. It is an action word. It is not just a thing you can crown yourself. Like people are kind of like out on the internet calling themselves allies and have done nothing but post a black square on Instagram. It's not a thing you can just kind of label yourself. It is something that requires that you do some work. And that work is getting to know different people and understanding your personal privilege, which we all have some form of privilege, like almost everyone does. Um, and then also doing the labor of figuring out how you can create some connection by extending your privilege. And so that's, it's labor. I always try to tell people ally is a verb. It's not a title. It's something you do. And then as far as performative allyship, Performative allyship is basically when, you know, the same person with power and privilege essentially kind of professes their support or they kind of like announce that they stand in solidarity with a marginalized group of people. And they particularly will do this in a very public way, whether that's online or in front of a group of people or, you know, in a way that's being captured or recorded in some way. Um, and, and it isn't really a helpful action. Like, you know, it is giving the appearance of doing the supporting and is giving the appearance of extending privilege when it is not actually backed up with meaningful actions or potentially it's actually backed up with actions that can actively harm the group. Like perform performative allyship can be harmful because the danger lies in that, you know, if people think, oh, there are people that are supporting, you know, the black community and I've seen that and I've seen it online, it can lead others to feel like they don't have to do that same work. Um, they can also feel like, oh, the work is happening. And so therefore, you know, the problems that the Black community may, may be experiencing are not legitimate because I can see that people are actually serving as allies when in reality, if people are performing, 
you know, no one's really reaping the benefit from that. No one's actually getting the opportunity to experience life differently. And so it creates this narrative that almost kind of can make the marginalized group that is receiving the performative allyship seem like they're ungrateful or like they're, you know, in some way not, you know, open to getting the support of allies when, you know, it's really just that that allyship that we're seeing isn't authentic or actually useful. And so that's, that's the difference between the two. And the funny thing about it is I always say, you know, ally is a verb. Performative ally is also a verb. Like it's also something you do, but it's like just really easy. Um, it's, it's kind of the things that don't require you to get uncomfortable or have difficult conversations. And it also looks really good on social media versus like allyship, which may not make it to social media or may not necessarily make it to conversations and also can put you in a position to kind of have to reckon with like recognizing your own flaws in terms of, you know, the way that you experience privilege and power. And so it can be a bit more difficult to actually be an ally versus being a performative ally. Right. And these terms aren't really new, but as we talked about, you know, with the the heinous murders with George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and Ahmaud Arbery, it just, there seemed to be a, a back-to-back nature, at least in the news cycle, of how this was hitting. And I think it may have pushed employees and companies into a place where they had to wrestle with this more than they would have had to in another year. And of course, we can't ignore the fact that work in life is just different. People are feeling things more. People, for the large part, from a corporate standpoint, are home. There isn't there's not space to go places. You're you're looking at the news, you're you're dealing with your coworkers in a different place. And in in some cases, you're not as visible because of how we we just generally have to work and interact. So there's kind of connection and conversation or lack of conversation in certain ways about things that just it changes the dynamic. So, I mean, you've done this in many environments. You've worked at Walmart, Blue Cross Blue Shield, and now you have your own inclusion consulting company. So in all your years working in DNI and exploring the different issues that are related, have you ever really seen a corporate response like this? Never, never, not at all. Um, this is completely different. And I think it's the culmination of all of that. I think, you know, we are starting to have sports again. Um, we are starting to have movies again. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know how long those things are going to last, but a lot of this happened at a time when we had none of that. And so the attention, the the opportunity for like precise focus on this topic was just, I mean, it was fertile ground. And so, no, there was there was no corporate response like this in the past because corporations had other things to be concerned about. But like in an environment where people are not able to work like normal, people are not able to, um, you know, go to school like normal. They're not able to connect with friends and family like normal. They're not able to entertain themselves the same way. When something really big happens in that space, it captures all of the attention. And, you know, corporate was no different. They had to kind of turn and look at this and reckon with it and decide where they were going to respond. And so I've never, ever seen it before. Now, what I also think is that because of that, there was a certain amount of social pressure that existed in the past, but 
never existed without the distractions that exist in everyday life when we are not currently living under a global pandemic. And so it caused companies to like feel this pressure to respond, you know, feel this pressure to go, oh my gosh, like I don't want my black associates to feel this way. I don't want racism to be a thing that is going to impact how people experience work here. Where I think that that might've been something that mattered, I don't think that the visibility to like how impactful it was and how deeply it was affecting um, certain identities in the workplace was even able to be seen because there's so much other stuff going on. You know, we've got to think about how we're going to be carbon net zero by 2020. We've got to think about, you know, how we're going to expand our global footprint by 2025. We've got to, you know, like there's all these other objectives that literally had to grind to a halt because the world said stay home. And now even during the stay home period, there's this incredibly visible, atrocious, terrifying and terrible incident that like you you don't have a choice but to acknowledge that it exists and acknowledge that it is going to have an emotional impact on the people that work for you particularly those who are um sharing identity with you know George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, you know Breonna Taylor. I mean and gosh, you know there are many many other names, right? And so you know I I I think what made companies be different this time was the social pressure was concentrated versus okay, great. I know that's going on, but I have these other nine things that I also need to work on that, you know, you know, for the most part, employees are kind of like, well, yeah, you probably need to work on those too, you know? And so it, but this time there was none of that. You can't talk to me about what's happening in the stores. Your stores are closed. You know, you can't talk to me about what your hiring looks like. You cannot hire right now, but you can talk about what people are experiencing around this topic because we're hearing it and seeing it all day, every day. And so it was like, it was a terrible, terrible event, but like the timing and the concertedness of it forced companies to have to reckon with realities that I think without being forced, you know, to some degree they would have continued to ignore. You know, I've been training organizations for years. I mean, easily 10 years. I've, you know, I've been doing the work that I do now full time for the last three and a half, four years. And from that moment, from the moment that George Floyd's murder was very visible on, the conversation has been different. You know, we're no longer having trainings that are just, you know, unconscious bias and what's diversity and what's inclusion. It is now, I want to talk about anti-racism. I want to know what racism is. I want to be able to know what I can do to show up in solidarity. I want to build cohesive and meaningful partnership. And those are not conversations that companies were willing to engage in before that. So it's, I mean, it changed everything. It's, it's, we really entered a new territory, at least at this point in terms of conversation yeah. and thinking about where there might be some commitments. But I do have to say this year has caused you to respond differently too. So you now have a book, Allies and Advocates. So tell us a little bit about the book and what inspired you to write it. You know, really, why this book and why now? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so Allies and Advocates kind of happened to me, <laughs> um, which I think 2020 kind of happened to all of us. Um, I, you know, I 
I didn't talk a lot about allyship or advocacy prior um, to May of this year. Um, but, you know, with all of the things that kind of came behind, you know, this racial reckoning that the United States, really the globe kind of, you know, faced, um, I s- developed a training around that because I was like, well, if we're going to talk about it, let's talk about the right way to do it. Let's talk about what being an ally looks like. Like, you know, folks running around just kind of calling themselves this thing like, no, this is labor and I want you to do it if you're interested in it. Let's figure out how to unpack what that means. And so I started to do this training that was called, you know, from ally to advocate. And I mean, it caught on fire. You know, I I did it for two companies and it felt like, you know, every other day I was getting three to 12 emails asking me, like, can you come and teach this at my company? I heard it from my friend that works at, you know, Amazon or my friend that works at Vans or whoever, you know, and it was just, it it just kind of caught like wildfire. And so I was doing this, you know, 90 minute session on, you know, from ally to advocate that walked through what allyship means, why it's important, and then also what advocacy means and why it's important in really practical, fundamental kind of step-by-step ways. And then what caused it to become a book is, you know, I was told, you know, by a friend of mine, a friend of ours, actually, Amanda, um, like, you should do this, you know, public facing, you know, I do, you know, really just to, you know, business to business work. I had never done anything direct to consumer, but she's like, well, I mean, the course is hot, like, see if, you know, it would be something that perhaps would do well in direct to consumer. And so, you know, we set it up, we did some flyers, we, you know, put it out on LinkedIn and Instagram and Twitter and Facebook and, you know, kind of waited to see who would sign up and sure enough, people signed up. So we had a course and a woman joined the course that was an acquisitions editor for a publisher and she loved the course. And she followed up with me after the course and basically said, Hey, I want to know if you would be interested to write a book. Like, let's talk about it. This topic is important. I want to do my part. And so, you know, can we have a conversation? And I think that that's like a great example of allyship. Like it's, you know, this woman showed up to really learn, you know, she showed up to figure out like, what can I do to be an ally and literally real time, heard the message, okay, this is what allyship looks like, and took the opportunity to say, oh, well, I can be an ally by extending this opportunity to you. You clearly have the content. You clearly know how to talk about this. Let me lean in and invite you to be able to do it. So that's that's why the book happened. I've always wanted to write a book. I've always wanted to be an author. I just never really knew what it was going to be about exactly or how it was going to happen. And so, you know, when you say why this book and why now, I just think that the, you know, the 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 environment was ripe for it, you know, and, and the timing unfolded such that it created an opportunity for me to put it out there. And I think what people are looking for around the topic of allies and advocates is like, what do I do? What are the actions? And this book is about that. It's giving you like explicit steps to be able to show up in those ways. Great. And in the book, you make a point to give an overview of Black people's history in America as as you get started. Why is this context important to the discussion of diversity and inclusion right now in America? Yeah. So I want to say that Black identity is incredibly important to just about any discussion around um, diversity. Uh, You know, if you really kind of take some time and dig into Black 
identity and Black history, you would almost be mind blown by just how much Black people have had a significant impact on, you know, the way cultures have evolved across the globe. But particularly in America, I thought it was important to include, you know, the history of Black Americans in this country um, at, the, at the opening portion of the book, because we are at a point right now where we had a series, we had a summer, you know, of protests and, you know, outrage and fury and really difficult conversations and companies standing up and making, you know, like public, you know, displays of like, we are going to operate this way, you know, going forward. There's just been a lot of happenings. And I don't know that everyone understands why. And so I wanted to make sure that the book opened with, let me lay the context out for you of what is going on right now and why, you know, what might seem like one incident, you know, which by no means is, you know, the death of George Floyd, a small incident, but, you know, what might seem like a singular incident is really the culmination of hundreds of years of atrocities and violations and disrespects and brokenness and illegal behavior and just, you know, just a lot of things that I don't know that people understand the history of and certainly don't understand the history of clearly. And so, you know, to try to get to the point of being an advocate, I wanted to make sure that people walked into that work without having any misunderstanding that Black identities do not deserve this. And, you know, again, you can be an ally for anyone, you know, and you should, you should, you know, I serve as an ally, you know, for the LGBTQ community to, you know, people who are differently abled, like all of those people still deserve advocates, but particularly because of the racial reckoning in this country, I wanted to make sure that no one made the mistake of thinking that Black people were in the position of begging or that they were in some position of like not being deserving of the allyship and the labor of other people to kind of like make right the you know the many atrocities that have happened to get us to the place where we are protesting and and literally across the globe about you know the safety and value of black identity and um, being able to feel safe and so that's why I, I wanted to make sure that that was included in the book. Well, and and that's great context, and I I can't help but think back to. Um, SNL this weekend with Dave Chappelle hosting. And he made a joke about it with his kindness conspiracy idea. But this idea of deserving, Mm -hmm. he talked a little bit about this, this concept of, you know, if you think about the many things that have happened to Black people that were negative in this country that they did not deserve. This idea of allyship is really thinking through how, as you mentioned, how can you extend access? How can you share some of your space and power in a way that can help? And it doesn't have to be a deserving thing. And right. that can be a hard thing to think about in a work context because everybody's thinking about OKRs. They're all thinking about metrics and performance. But there is a space where there's a gap that can be filled if you so choose to kind of pick up that ally banner or the advocate banner. And they're yeah. kind of a shared experience. So yeah. I really appreciate you thinking about that context and including it for anybody that needs it. And honestly, we all are still piecing together pieces of the information. I regularly am on Twitter, I'm online, I'm reading news and still learning even more about what has happened systematically or not. And it's it's just, it's a lot to take in. So I appreciate that you've laid out a book in a very uh, clear way. Um, and I know you have a direct style, so I appreciate that too, because you'll get to the point. <laughs> yeah. I did want to ask though, you mentioned in the book that becoming an ally and an advocate is a lifestyle change. 
for for those who are listening, I would hope uh, you can share just maybe one or two because you want to give away the spoilers. But <laughs> what are some of the practical ways that we can Im- embed being allies and advocates into our daily lives? Yeah. So I, I always say that allyship, inclusion, any of these things, they, they are all a lifestyle change. You, you should approach them as such, you know, and think about any other lifestyle change you want to make. You know, many of us, particularly those of us who are, you know, mid thirties or older, you know, we may have a few extra coronavirus pounds laying around here. Um, and so, you know, you maybe have decided that one of the lifestyle changes you'd like to make is to lose a little bit of weight. How do you approach that? You think critically about how you can tuck it into your life. You are thoughtful about what you eat. You are thoughtful about, um, you know, the way you spend your time working out. You are thoughtful about how often you are sitting. You are thoughtful about if you walk or not. You, you know, you make decisions to take the stairs instead of the elevator. You are purposeful about including it in the way that you live your life. Being an ally and an advocate is the same thing. It is the same thing. And so when you make the decision that you want to be an ally and an advocate, you have to make a decision that you are going to choose some practical behaviors the same way you would if you were making any other lifestyle change and embed them into your normal practice. And so you get to decide what those are. Um, the book has many <laughs> that you can choose from. Um, and there are you know, some that I think are more fitting for certain identities than others. You have to kind of make the decision about where you might fall on the spec on the spectrum. But a couple that I think are really, you know, kind of popular and common that are in the book is, you know, the first one is, you know, use gender inclusive language. You know, we don't do a good job of that in this country. I can't tell you how often I'm watching the news and I hear a group of, you know, all female newscasters refer to each other like, hey guys, it's good to see you this evening. And I'm like, guys, it's not gender inclusive. Like mm-hmm. Let's make an effort in a world where gender is evolving, when we want people to feel seen, safe, and heard, to be inclusive about the language that we are choosing. And like, guys is one of the things we can say differently. We can say colleagues, we can say friends, we can say folks, we can say peeps, we can say, you know, there are lots of words that we can use. And occasionally I encounter someone that says, you know, guys, it is gender inclusive. The word has changed. It has evolved. And I always say, okay, great. So if I told you I slept with six guys this weekend, what would you think? <laughs> and they have this moment, right? Where they're like, oh, right. And so I'm like, it's not, the word is not gender inclusive. And so like, it takes practice, you know, to, to, to get that particular word out of your lexicon, but even other ways that it can show up. I've literally watched Congress women refer to themselves on the news as congressmen. Oh, I've been a congressman for the last two years now. And I'm like, you are a congressperson. You might be a congresswoman, but you are not a congressman, right? And so just the ways that we do things like that, um, I, I think, you know, is a great place to practice allyship. It, it invites connection in ways that you don't even realize, right? And so that's one of the things that you can kind of, you know, kind of step into your your day-to-day practice, right? Like I'm going to get guys out of my lexicon. Personally, you know, I think there's always some labor to, to work on around language. For example, for myself, one of the things I'm working on right now is not calling heterosexual people straight. Mm-hmm. Um, I do not like what it su- suggests about someone who is not heterosexual. Are they crooked? Right. So I'm making a point to say someone who is heterosexual is heterosexual instead of, you know, I am a straight black woman. I try to say I am a heterosexual 
black woman. And that's fairly new, you know, because I recognize like, oh, wait, I don't, I can't appreciate what that could suggest. So like language is one of the things that you can do. The other one is please, please, please learn how to apologize and apologize. Well, we have had, you know, over the last five years easily, we could all think of, you know, companies or people or incidences where someone needed to give a meaningful apology and they failed at it like miserably. And uh, an apology is not hard. It's not hard. And it's also not about you, but it's not, I'm sorry, if it's not, if I did this thing, you know, I apologize for that. Um, if I offended you, it's none of those things. It's not conditional. It is simply recognizing I did this thing and I want to apologize for it. And I want to tell you what I'm going to do going forward. So I, I spend a lot of energy telling people how to apologize and what an apology sounds like. And that's, I apologize for going forward. I will. I apologize for mispronouncing your name. Moving forward, I'll make sure to say it correctly. I apologize for my remarks about Black talent. Moving forward, I'll make sure to monitor my own bias before speaking publicly. That's an apology, right? It tells me what you did. It tells me what you're going to do going forward. But that is not what apologies have sounded like. And as a result, we have companies, we have people who have lost jobs, who have been disgraced, who have been, you know, essentially dragged publicly because they could not render an appropriate apology. And so those are two ways that, you know, if you want to be an ally and you want to be an advocate, you've got to get really good at being able to use language that's going to invite others in because you got to connect the folks to really get to know where your power and privilege is different than theirs. And you can serve as an opportunity to extend your power and privilege to give them access to something they don't have access to. And then also the apology piece really is, you know, it's incredibly important because if you can't apologize well, you know, um, you know, that, that, that doesn't lend credibility to the possibility that you are open to engaging with identities that are different than you. You know, we're going to encounter people and we're going to mispronounce their names. We're going to misgender people. We're going to make assumptions about identity. I can't tell you I'm, I'm, a, I'm a woman who is, you know, I have short hair. I have so many people that assume I'm a lesbian, right? Just because I have short hair. And so it's like, you know, I have to correct that and you should be able to apologize. I apologize for assuming, you know, your, your sexuality based on your haircut. Moving forward, I'll be more mindful about those kinds of assumptions, right? Like that's a meaningful apology. And so I think if we recognize you know, just how important it is that each of us have the opportunity to display our own identity and to correct others in it, you know, we can, you know, see why it's important to embed at least those two practices around uh, lifestyle change, you know, being an ally and an advocate. Definitely. And the, both of those are, are simple moves you can make, but it's definitely something that you, you have to work at because it'll pop up in ways. And if you're not paying attention and being present in that, you can easily slip back into old habits. And from, from a person, from a communication standpoint, as somebody who's written several statements and apologies, I can tell you that the, what you're saying is it feels common sense, but it's not there because yeah. it's a, there's a, a level of humanity that when you move through the corporate environment and it goes from comms through marketing, through legal, there's this thought that certain words will open you to risk. And I definitely hear that because I, I, I jokingly say I'm, I'm a comms and marketing person who can, we're legal and I are friends. We, we can find a common ground, but right. there's got to be some humanity in that. And I think that the apology portion, especially of what you're talking about, is the ability to humble yourself in a way that you can say and acknowledge when you make a mistake and genuinely continue that connection with the other person. Yes. It's not a brush off. It is not, it, it is an acknowledgement and an ownership of where you did something wrong. 
And it's not something we have to be afraid of because that's what it feels like so often. Our backs get up against the wall when we feel like we've done something wrong or if we don't feel it, somebody else feels it. And, and there's this tension and it doesn't have to be that. And, and, and I think that that's just something that as we continue the conversation forward, both around allyship of what we've learned this year, but in the future, if there's just a thought around the fact that if you're going to be an ally, you're there to help and be in service of the other person. And that means thinking about their feelings as a person, even as you're communicating. Um, I wrestle all the time with clients around this idea of brand, 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 because the brand is made up of people, the people who work for you, the people that you're connecting with as customers, and you need to maintain that humanity. So I'll, I'll step off my soapbox on that one, but I no, I, I'm so glad you said that. I tell people all the time that like my job is to teach people to be good humans, <laughs> you know, like because that's what it comes down to is like recognizing that like the way you experience humanity in your own bones is not the way someone else does, and we need to make room for that. Right. So. I've spent over, I mean, a decade studying people, brands, and platforms that they use to present their ideas to the world. And I find some of the most valuable brands and platforms are holistic. And they kind of stretch across a person's life instead of fitting neatly into one lane, like, this is who I am at work. The best ones are, this is just simply who I am. And there are different ways that it's communicated depending upon where you are. So let's talk a little bit about Amber and understand a bit about who you are and the platform you're building um, with an emphasis on that who you are part. Okay. So if, if you'll indulge me, I'm a major fan of Inside the Actor's Studio, and I wish it was still around. I, I joke that if I wasn't doing that, if I wasn't doing what I'm doing now, I would love to try to pitch myself for a show like that. But the interviewing style made popular by James Lipton and Bernard Prevo is something I've always loved. So we're going to steal some of their questions and add a few of our own. So you ready? Yeah, I'm ready. Let's do it. All right. So what's your hometown? Detroit, Michigan. All right. I was, I was actually born outside of Detroit, but that's that's my hometown. All right. So you guys made some waves in the last week. Mm-hmm. We are powerful people. <laughs> um, if you had to pick an intro song that played any time you entered a room, what would it be? Oh... Well, I mean, if you want what popped into my mind immediately, it was Megan The Stallion, Realer. Okay. Okay. Uh, what's your favorite word? Oh, probably esoteric. Mm-hmm. What's your least favorite word? Mm, no. <laughs> what sound do you love? I My absolute favorite sound in the world is a cork popping. Okay. And what sound do you hate? Nails on a chalkboard. What is the last podcast you listened to? The last podcast I listened to was Louder Than a Riot. It's an NPR podcast um, that's kind of new, but it's like a hip hop focused podcast. Um, And the episode I listened to was about Bobby Shmurda. Okay. What profession other than yours would you like to attempt? I don't know if this is fair. Like, I kind of love what I do. <laughs> um, but, you know, I guess my best answer, you know, I would kind of like to be a songwriter. Like, I'm a, I'm, I'm a writer. So I don't know if that's fair because, you know, I don't know how far writing songs is from what I do now. But I think if I could attempt to do anything outside of what I'm doing now, I would love to try to write music. Okay. 
What profession would you avoid completely? Oh, lots of them. Um, I am not doing anything that requires me to be outside all day. So like anything construction, like completely out of the question. <laughs> Where's the last place you traveled to? I went to Riviera, Riviera Maya, Mexico. I, um, I've only been back about a week and a half. Wow. Where would you love to go next? I am trying to go to the Maldives. Ooh. Yeah. Definitely on my list. Okay. If heaven exists, what would you like God to say to you when you arrive at the pearly gates? Mm. If heaven exists, what would I like God to say to me when I arrive at the pearly gates? I would like him to say, man, you used all of it. I want to die empty. I want to show up like I used every single thing that was given to me to use here. That's that's what I would like to hear. Wow. Excellent. Okay. So we're going to let you have the last word. And this podcast is, of course, called One Quick Point. So if you could leave our listeners with one quick point on allyship, a strategy or a tactic, something that will help them be better allies and advocates, what would it be? If it were one thing, I think it would be to approach everything with grace. Um, I don't know that, you know, with all of the many means of communication that we have, you know, whether that's cell phones and, you know, television and email and, you know, we're just very digital and connected. I feel like it at times takes away the kind heartedness and consideration that true allyship requires. Like you have to be willing to see someone else as a human being. And that requires grace. Like I I want people to be willing to extend more grace to one another, more patience to one another, more opportunity. And that does not mean that you have to be trampled all over or disrespected, but it does mean that when you approach a conversation that's challenging, you don't have to approach it like it has to be a fight. And so um, I think that's the most important tactic around allyship and inclusion and advocacy. All of those things require for them to be effective anyway. You know, I think most people are afraid to speak up and like action on those things because they don't want to get, you know, jumped on or cursed out or fussed at or any of that stuff. But I think if we all approach each other with just a bit more grace and awareness, we could get a lot further down the road. And with that, we'll close this episode of One Quick Point. Thank you for joining us, Amber. Thank you for having me. And for everyone listening, Allies and Advocates, Creating an Inclusive and Equitable Culture by Amber Cabral. It will be available on November 17th. But if you haven't already, go to alliesandadvocates.com and pre-order your book today. Thanks. This is One Quick Point. Point.